Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the first episode of Shipping Shakespeare, your probably monthly podcast for all the Shakespeare headcanons you could want, from everything to Horatio and Hamlet to the weirder stuff, which we're not going to talk about yet. I'm Julia. And I'm Liz. And this week we are talking about Shakespeare's famous comedy, Twelfth Night. Which is only the best comedy Shakespeare ever wrote, in my entirely unbiased opinion. It is our very favorite comedy, and we're really excited to be talking about it, and it's also the gayest play Shakespeare wrote, in my opinion. Bless. Anyway, to get us started, Liz is going to give us a quick summary of what the play is about. Uh, quick being somewhat relative, because it's Liz. All right. Well, in my defense, I timed this, and it came to less than 90 seconds, so I think we're okay. I'm really proud of you. Me too. All right. Twelfth Night in 90 Seconds. Duke Orsino of Illyria is mopey and emo because Countess Olivia won't marry him while she mourns her brother. In the world of people with real problems, our heroine Viola has survived a shipwreck which she thinks has drowned her identical twin brother Sebastian. She can't ask Olivia for help because of the whole mourning thing, so because this is a Shakespeare comedy, she disguises herself as a boy and takes service with Orsino. Orsino really gets into this charming young man and makes Viola his go-between to Olivia. The plot thickens when Viola falls in love with Orsino's emo ass and Olivia succumbs to Viola's gender-fluid charms. In the subplot, Olivia's drunk moocher Uncle Toby wants her to marry his dumb friend Andrew, Olivia's lady-in-waiting Maria has the unexplained hots for Toby, Feste the Jester is laughing at everyone, and Malvolio the Steward hates the whole cast! Maria and Toby use a forged letter to trick Malvolio into thinking that Olivia's into him, Malvolio makes an idiot of himself and gets locked up for madness, and Toby marries Maria, I guess because he likes practical jokes. Meanwhile, Viola's brother Sebastian is alive! He got rescued by a pirate named Antonio who fell in love with him and is totally on Orsino's shit list. They wind up in Illyria, the twins get mistaken for each other, duels and marriages and lots of confusion result, and in the end, everyone gets sorted into the heterosexual couples that society requires. Except Malvolio. He gets nothing. That was great. Thank you, Liz. You're most welcome. I had fun with it. Uh, okay, so we're about to get into the canon pairings, but before we do that, I do want to give you a little bit of background on um, kind of the common Shakespeare themes and key ideas that show up in Twelfth Night. Uh, Twelfth Night deals with a number of those, including gender swapping, as Liz mentioned, and the badass ladies who do it, soppy, overly romantic dudes whining about their feelings, disguise and deceit, mistaken identity, subversion of cultural norms and traditional values, fools as truth-tellers, and the importance of friendship and romantic relationships. First performed in 1602, Twelfth Night is one of the three festival comedies. The others are Much Ado About Nothing and As You Like It. Title is a reference to the Twelfth Night of Christmas, also known as Epiphany, also known as the Christian replacement for the pagan holiday of Saturnalia, which often included an inversion of authority and cultural roles. So in Shakespeare's day, that would have been things like the Feast of Fools. So as in many of the Shakespearean comedies, the normal orders of class, gender, and acceptable behavior are abandoned for most of the play and only are ultimately reestablished at the end, as Liz also noted, traditionally with a marriage or marriages. Though even that restoration is a little bit questionable in it's Twelfth little, Night. It's a little fuzzy. We're going to talk about it. So, for example, uh, that Orsino has feelings for Sario would be considered in Shakespeare's time to be an inversion because, you know, he thinks he has feelings for another man. But because Viola is secretly a woman, order can be reasserted at the end of the play when the two marry. Although, we all know that Orsino almost certainly asked her to wear the pants again on special occasions. Yeah, and like all the time. All the time. <laughs> so, Have you seen her in those pants? My god. She looks amazing in them. Like, mm -hmm. everyone falls in love with her, so they must be some great pants. Mm -hmm. 
to wrap up, gender equality was a hot topic in Elizabethan England, not least because the country had a queen who didn't exactly embody all the expected gender norms. And who herself resisted the kind of marriage that Shakespeare's comedies love to slap the characters into at the end. Exactly. Never married, had to declare her own heir, who also wasn't the most masculine fellow either. Bless. And likewise, the Protestant Reformation led to a new exploration of the roles women had in society, with women founding their own sects of Christianity and taking leadership roles in others, where they were previously barred from doing so in the Catholic Church. So Twelfth Night allows Shakespearean audiences to explore all of these ideas within the artificial and therefore safe space of the play. And that's just a touch of background for Twelfth Night. If you'd like to learn more, we'll drop some references and fun books in the show notes. But now, let's get to the shipping. Yes! The reason we are all here! Let's start with the canon ships. These are the ones we've decided for the purposes of this podcast that what we consider canon ships are ships that are explicitly alluded to in the text of the play. These can be reciprocated, these can be one-sided, as long as they're explicitly mentioned by Shakespeare without reference to subtext, they count as canon for us. Absolutely. So, for example, in this play, we start out with one such couple, Orsino and Olivia. Orsino is in love with Olivia, but Olivia definitely does not return his feelings. But because he explicitly expresses them in a romantic way, we consider it part of the canon, unlike some other pairings that we're going to talk about later on. Which also happen to be like all of my OTPs. The best one! Always! (laughs) Subtext is king! Okay, so we we brought up Orsino and Olivia. He starts out the play with that drippy, terrible monologue. Oh, God, it just makes you want to punch him. He's like every dude who ever sat out on the quad with a guitar singing his feelings. Like, he makes Romeo sound really well-adjusted, really. (sighs) I mean, Romeo at least speaks decent poetry at the beginning. Orsino just, like, doesn't even try. Yeah, so um, maybe you've heard this one. If music be the food of love, play on. But what they don't tell you about the rest of that line is it's not, oh, hey, music is great. It's, oh, my God, gorge me on this stuff so I can die. I'm so emo. So full of feelings. (laughs) And the best part of this whole scene is that nobody else in Orsino's entire court is on board with this ship. Orsino is literally the only person in Illyria who ships him and Olivia. Seriously, like even his buddies, or I I guess they're like his dudes in waiting, Curio and what's the other one? Valentine? Valentine. A lot of Valentines in Shakespeare. A lot of Antonios in Shakespeare. Shockingly. (laughs) Yeah, even they're like, "Uh, can we like just please move on to something else? This country is full of women who would definitely bang you. And if few of them are, you know, worth marrying too. So can you please stop being so annoying? But we can't say that because we're your underlings and it's hard. Which is part of what makes Viola as Cesario so interesting to Orsino later on is that she's the only person who actually says this stuff to him instead of just thinking it at him really hard. Absolutely. And that's actually the next pairing on our canon list is Viola and Orsino. It's a really interesting progression because obviously Viola spends most of the play pretending to be a dude. And it's maybe not surprising that she falls in love with him immediately. He clearly has feelings for Cesario from the beginning. The fascinating thing about this ship to me is that while he's languishing around moaning and groaning over how perfect Olivia is and how she'll never consent to be with him and he'll be miserable forever, he winds up having these amazing in-depth give-and-take discussions about love with Cesario. Yeah, because Viola just comes in with these ideas like, well, you can't just talk at her with all this empty imagery that doesn't mean anything. You have to engage people. Also, I think this stuff that uh, Viola talks about with gender. Yes. Through being Cesario with Orsino is really important because he clearly has this kind of Petrarchan, like, courtly love 
like feeling about Olivia like you know I'm the one with all the passion I'm the one with all the feelings women can't really feel romance on the same level and Viola just like bullshit women feel everything that men feel if not more so they just they're not allowed to express it the same way they don't lie around and scream about it they just get on with their life that's also true we have other shit to do yeah no there's that wonderful line where he's expostulating about his vision of Olivia is of an incredibly passive creature that he acts upon and mm-hmm. Viola mm-hmm. in in act two scene four he, he tells this this to Viola he conveys this notion of his putative relationship with Olivia and Viola comes right back at him with I know what the real deal is I know what relationships are like. I know what real love is, and it ain't what you're displaying, kid. And he is stunned. The conversation ends with him asking what happened to this sister that she's concocted but is also her, and she has to change the subject back to Olivia. Orsino's forgotten all about Olivia because he's gotten so wrapped up in this real discussion about love with this beautiful young page boy. So beautiful. What? Oh, there's. it's such a good like listing of qualities. I'm going to find it. Diana's lip is not more smooth and rubious. Thy small pipe is as the maiden's organ, shrill in sound, and all assemblative of a woman's part. I know thy constellation is right apt for this affair. I mean, he's explaining why he, quote-unquote, uh, Cesario is the best person to send to uh, Olivia to woo her, but he's clearly thought about how pretty this yeah, boy is. Yeah, he's also kind of talking very unsubtly about how Cesario is also totally the best person to get in his bed. Right? Right? In the middle of wooing Olivia, he's so smitten right off the bat. And any Orsino who doesn't play it like that just is never playing it right to me. Because the Cesario thing just comes out of nowhere and kind of takes over his life in ways he doesn't even recognize at first. Well, and even, I don't remember if it's Curio or Valentine, but one of them even comments, like, wow, you've gotten into our Lord's confidence super quick there, kiddo. Like, how did you do yeah. that? Yeah, and Viola's all cute and shy about it, because, like, she's got the hots too, obviously. But yeah, no, like, everybody knows it. <laughs> it's not a secret, guys. Yeah, no, it's blatantly apparent that these people feel this connection. And it's also really apparent that Orsino doesn't really know what to do about that until the end when conveniently (laughs) the dude he's been feeling things for turns out to be a lady. Yeah, because that's the other part of it, isn't it? That Orsino has this kind of patriarchal notion of man and woman. And part of the reason that he can have these discussions with Cesario, but not with Olivia, is because he thinks Cesario, by virtue of being male, is more on his intellectual level. Right, he's gotten to treat someone as an equal who then turns out to be his romantic partner. And I think part of what Shakespeare is arguing is that we have to do that. Absolutely. That's why that relationship matters. Right. And to me, that's why that relationship works, because I I still get like a little skeeved out by Ursino in general. Like, he bothers me. He's a mess. But the, yeah, the fact that he and Viola get to kind of commune soul to soul, I guess, before he realizes that she's a woman means that like like it's a workaround for all of his issues i guess is what i yeah, would say yeah no it's someone might as well have just like created this person who would be his perfect turn on and stuck him right there in a pair of pants that shows off her great ass <laughs> and apparently it is a fantastic ass 
And he just doesn't know what to do about it. And it's adorable. It's great. Useless, and but adorable. And he's not the only one. No, no. Not the only one. So I guess moving on to the next one is we have Olivia and she doesn't realize it's Viola, but Olivia and Viola or Cesario, if you want to explain it that way. But speaking of falling fast, I think Olivia falls faster for Viola than Orsino does. Yes. It's almost instantaneous. But the fascinating thing is it's the exact same kind of intellectual connection that does for them both. That what what totally turns her off about Orsino is that overflown nonsense. And when Viola gets in her face and sasses her from the beginning and then wraps it up with this beautiful fantasy of what she would do if she were in love with Olivia like Orsino is, it's the brain power and the unwillingness to kowtow to her station that just completely does her in. Yeah. Well, we already understand her as someone who's moved by the arguments of others because not very long at all before this scene, Feste has defended himself against, you know, some charges she's brought against him that he's been dishonest and I think running about with Toby is the the main charge and he turns everything back on her I mean take the fool away <laughs> take the lady still one of my favorite gentle shit talking moments in all of Shakespeare he is my favorite fool and we will talk about that later yes. So she's she's obviously someone who's moved by intellectual arguments, which, I mean, you think it would be like a fundamental thing to know about a person, but Orsino obviously doesn't understand this about her, or he would approach her completely differently. Almost like he's got this really simplistic view of relationships and men and women! What a crazy idea! Actually, it's really... I was thinking this time when I got to the end of the play that it occurred to me, how long has it been since these two people actually spoke to one another? <laughs> It's probably been years, yeah, right? We, or at least we a don't year. know because the the only time they ever actually talk to each other is in the very last scene, right? And just the way that they respond to one another, especially how she responds to him, like, "Oh, it's you, yeah, <laughs> get out." <laughs> what would my lord? But that he may not have exactly, and he clearly doesn't know how to respond to her. But I don't. I was like, when was the last time he even talked to her instead of through someone else or just about her? Yeah, not not for a while, I'd imagine. It's not. Yeah, it's so weird that that relationship didn't work. It's shocking. Uh, but to go back to Cesario yes. and Olivia, yeah, someone who challenges her, who makes arguments to her, who I mean compliments her in these really backhanded ways. It's not negging, I will say that. No, it's it's more complex than that. But the you know how could you not share this beauty with the world and leave a copy for us? It's just wrong. Which tickles me because that's the exact argument that Shakespeare uses in the first say sixteen and a half sonnets. Yeah. <laughs> that he's literally just grabbing all the stuff that he wrote to the fair youth to convince him to have kids and abbreviating it considerably and sticking it in Viola. But it works. It works maybe better. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's less labored than it is in the sonnets. I mean, they're sonnets. What are you going to do? Yeah. Someone's going to yell at me about saying that. But it's I mean, okay. there are certain sonnets that I just, you know, they make me want to scream and cry and hug the world. But those early 16 and a half are not them. There is a reason we remember the sonnets for the passionate declarations of love rather than the, hey, have a kid. <laughs> true. Very true. One other thing I'd note about Cesario and Olivia is that another thing that completely gets her is that while she is, as we've seen, able to be persuaded by intellectual argument, she is not used to not being the most powerful person in the room. That's true. That, all, all, that whole conversation with 
Feste and Malvolio, they're both sort of checking in with her, like, is this acceptable? How about this? Let me spin it this way. And she's the ultimate arbiter. And when Viola comes to deliver Orsino's message, she takes control immediately. And Olivia tries to reassert herself, but she never really manages it. And that, I think, is probably as powerful an aphrodisiac as anything for her. No, I think that's very much true. I mean, so we've already said, right, one of the problems with Orsino is he doesn't approach her as an equal, even though she's the only person in all of Illyria, I think, who is. Pretty much. I mean... In terms of class and nobility and power, they're on an equal footing, but he doesn't treat her that way. Yeah. And intellectually, I would argue she may even be his superior. I don't think you need to argue that one hard. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be nice. I, don't I know mean, why. I love Orsino, but brains, he's not. Yeah. Very pretty, apparently. There's a reason I like that movie version with Toby Stevens as Orsino. It's a fair argument. It is. It really gets at the marrow of his appeal. <laughs> <laughs> As it were. <laughs> I will note that we haven't talked about Viola's half of this ship. That we've we've talked a lot about Olivia's feelings, but not about Viola's feelings in the Olivia Cesario ship. Uh, I don't know how canon Viola's feelings well, are. Well, she, yeah, I mean, the only, we have, I was noticing it on the, the recent read-through, that we have two instances where she explicitly states a feeling she has about Olivia. They're both in that, in the confrontation scene, where Olivia puts it all on the table, and she asks Viola, you know, how do you feel about me? Say something. And Viola says, I pity you. And Olivia says, that's a degree to love. And Viola says, no, very oft we pity our enemies. So she's going through some interesting emotional stuff here because she, insofar as Olivia is a rival for Orsino's affections, Viola knows very well that they're at odds here and that this is the person she needs to get rid of. But she also can't help feeling really bad that she can't be the person Olivia's in love with. So you have this this weird kind of unwilling, affectionate sympathy, which is, you know, far from what Olivia wants to get out of her, but is interesting, especially in a Shakespearean love triangle with two women. I, I think that's true. I think it also seems worth remarking that if not for Olivia's shut-in status, Viola would have ended up at her court. That's very true. Because at the beginning, that's where she says she should go, and the, the captain who's you know, helped her survive, says, oh, well, that's not the best idea, which is how she ends up cross-dressing and um, becoming Cesario in the first yeah. place. Oh, we could have had fun gay shenanigans without bringing Orsino into the picture at all. Right? Like, no one even needed to talk to him, which to me is the ideal version of Orsino, completely irrelevant in his own play. I like it. Solid. Very solid. No, but like on another level, we have two women who could have been close friends and or romantically involved, um, but don't have that option really just because of social structures and then what's going on with Olivia, which I would argue you can't really divorce from social structures yeah. to begin with. You know, there's a reason that she's not interested in talking to Orsino, and it's, it's not just because of him. It's just also the way that romance is being approached. Right? Yeah. I'm thinking particularly of, like, Helena and Hermia and how, like, the minute there's a guy in the picture coming between them, they are at each other's throats for all of this professed friendship. Well, this this is much gentler for obvious reasons. Right. Well, and it's it's more insightful as far as human nature, too. But it's, I just, I think it's really interesting that, like, they don't know each other at all. Olivia really does not know Viola at all. But there are these feelings that on Viola's part are completely genuine, and on Olivia's part, you know, maybe something happens after the curtain falls. I don't know. Good luck to them both. 
Yeah. Oh, one more thing. Uh, this also strikes me as a really good transition into Olivia and Sebastian. But before that, uh, you brought up the matter of the ring before, which does remind me, she protects Olivia when that happens. Oh, she does. And she doesn't have to do that. I mean, maybe she sees it in a way as her protecting Orsino too, but I think part of it is, as a woman, she understands what's at risk in that moment, and she, without really even thinking, just immediately goes, oh yeah, it's definitely like a ring that I had to bring here, not a ring that she's giving me, because that would be so weird, wouldn't it? (laughs) Oh, my heart. So it's actually, it's a really sweet, genuine gesture that has everything to do with who Viola is. Yeah. And nothing to do, I think, with who Cesario is supposed to be. Yeah. Girl code forever. Yes. Okay. But we're going to talk about Sebastian and Olivia now, which is such a problematic thing to me. And we'll talk about that more probably next time, but we're going to set it up now. So uh, if you'll remember from the summary, Viola has a twin brother and they look so much alike. (laughs) Can't tell the difference when Viola is dressed as a boy, even though that doesn't really make very much sense. But it's Shakespeare and twins, so you kind of just have to go with it. Not to mention that most of the audience was sitting far enough away that if you dress them alike, it counts. Right. And I mean, Viola is being played by a boy anyway. So there's that. Yeah. Anyway, so Sebastian shows up. Olivia encounters him. I assume that she plies him with, you know, drink and good times and fun for a little while. I mean, canonically, she gives him a pearl, which you know, take that as you will. Yeah, sure. There no weird symbolism None there. whatsoever. I don't know what that could represent. I don't with. know either. It's just such a mystery. It's like the C's, the U's, and the T's in Malvolio's letter. What does it mean? <laughs> it means Shakespeare was a dirty-minded son of a bitch, y'all. He was. And he we was. love him for He's it. the perv among pervs. But if you're listening to this, you're probably a little bit of a perv too. No judgment, because so are we. Anyway, so Sebastian spends a little bit of time with Olivia, but then not that much time, and then they get married, and it's totally fine, because he's the boy version of Byla, anyway, and it's it's the same. It's okay. Except that he's not, like... He's really Wait, he not. gets so much less stage time than Viola that it's it's hard to make that call and do him justice. But there's not a lot of him to do justice to. Like he's no. nice, he's noble, he's devoted to his friends. He he misses his sister terribly and feels racked with guilt that he's survived and she hasn't. But there's not much else to him. He doesn't have anything resembling the complexity that Viola has. And it would be so right. easy for Shakespeare to write him a soliloquy and give him a moment to have that level of of human reality. But he doesn't, because bless his heart, Sebastian's a plot device. He is. I mean, it, it really is just so that at the end, when we need to restore the heteronormative order, we can do that. Because, yay, twins! Yay, they are the same! They're basically the same person, (laughs) and Sebastian's really hot, too, and he's pretty much a good guy. I mean, he's good enough to, like, deserve Antonio's love, I guess is probably the most we can say about him. Well, and Viola loves him, and her judgment counts for a lot. Viola loves him. And he values her. He does. He he values her as an equal in a way that I don't think is always true of siblings in Shakespeare. Yeah. We're going to do Hamlet next, so we'll see the ways in which that's not true in all of yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, seriously, Laertes, learn! But yeah, so we'll, we'll talk more about the ways in which that's problematic, but yeah, I mean, Sebastian is a placeholder that makes, uh, like, makes a brief foray into queerness acceptable. That's a brilliant way to put it, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, thanks. I will also note briefly that he is way more assertive than Viola when a hot girl is throwing herself at him, and that works great for Olivia in the moment, that she gets totally turned on by the fact that this dude she's been pursuing unsuccessfully suddenly just does an about-face and is just like, all right, let's do this. I've been at sea for three months with pirates. (laughs) I have things going on in my head. So many things. We'll get there. I just, I like to imagine that his enthusiasm makes up for the fact that he's not his sister. Yeah, no, that's definitely a plus. And, but, you know, he's still, it's a fine line that Shakespeare's walking to because if he was too eager, that would be gross. Yes, no, that's also an important point that the soliloquy he does have is his moment of confusion where he's just like, is this the real life? What is going on? What's even happening here? I really wish I could talk to my friend Antonio, but he's kind of vain. And also he would totally tell me to leave the chick and go with him, and that's not really what I want to do right now. That's why you should do this. do it. (laughs) But we're going to get there. I promise. Okay. Let's talk Toby Maria. Okay, yeah. So this, to me, I I think I I said in our notes, kind of falls into rowboat territory. Like, tiny ships. Very tiny ships. Although, it's debatable to me how much this is a a pairing worth rooting for in the first place. Yes. No, I think it's certainly a problematic ship. And I think it's also a ship that comes across much more clearly in performance than in reading. Yes. Because there's not a lot of text actually devoted to this. Right. And when you read it, it just seems like she's perpetually annoyed with him and he perpetually provokes her. And I've seen this performed on stage and on screen where there's a clear flirtatious element to the whole thing. Yeah, definitely. They can be a cute, appealing couple, but it is not inherent to the world. Yeah, no, the actors have to work at it to make you root for them, because he's an ass. He is. He's a drunken, somewhat entertaining, not really. You you don't really want Toby to settle down at the end of the play. You just want him to, like, go off with a crate of wine and just get himself drunk some corner of Illyria far away from the rest of the happy couples. Yeah, okay, so the only thing that makes it at all worthwhile is if Maria's happy, I'm happy, because she is amazing. She's great. Okay? She, just to remind y'all, she is uh, Olivia's lady-in-waiting. Yes, the lady-in-waiting who takes no shit from anybody. Anybody. So she's got this asshole uptight steward to deal with. She has the drunk uncle. She has her very dramatic mistress, by the way. And the stupid suitor and the troublesome jester. Right, not to mention all these people coming from Orsino's. It's and a lot. she's the one who's got to wrangle them all. And she does. Yes. And only loses her cool once. Like Maria is life goals with a just with a better partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you want your friends to be as good of friends as Maria is to yes. Olivia. She does an amazing job. So if Toby makes her happy, I say God bless. We'll talk more about why it's a problem, but they are a small side pairing, which is pretty common, I would say, in the comedies where it's just like, oh, we're just going to have these people get together. These, you know, are comedic relief people. Yeah. They're they're sort of on the level of Touchstone and Audrey that it's hard to root for them exactly, but a pair of talented actors can make you laugh. Yeah. As noted, there's just really not a lot of material in support. And even their marriage is this throwaway line that... Who gets that line? It's not Fabian? Oh, you're right. It is Fabian. I always forget Fabian exists. I do too, because he's pointless. Yeah. No, if you wanted to, like, cut characters in this play, just, like, chop up his lines and distribute them among Toby, Andrew, and Feste. Yeah, you don't need him. I mean, I guess he's slightly smarter than Andrew, so... It is interesting, though, I'm just looking back at this, he does cover for Maria in that moment, because it was Maria's idea to write the letter tricking Malvolio, and when he sees that Olivia's pissed about this letter, he says, oh, she only did it because Toby asked her to. 
Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's a robot we can talk oh. about. Fabian Maria. Oh. Wilds Defender, Fair right? enough. Interesting. I... All right. We're going to come back to that, Shakespeare, friends. an eternal font of ships. Yes. All the all ships. More than, you know, sailed on Troy. Olivia Malvolio. It is canon, much as I hate it. Hold on. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Under control. We're okay. Yeah, we're fine. <sighs> Okay, we're going to go through this really quickly. Yes. So, uh, as Liz mentioned in the summary, Maria and Toby and company trick Malvolio into thinking that Olivia, his employer, by the way, far, far above his station. In a way that, like, stations matter in Shakespeare. <laughs> they matter a lot. Yeah, so convinces him, this very, very uptight puritanical dude. Totally in love with himself. That she's... Yeah, he's so in love with himself that it's not a stretch at all for him to believe that his countess employer <laughs> is in love with him. He's such a douchebag. So gross. <laughs> so gross it makes Andrew and Olivia seem more plausible somehow. It really does. I didn't think anything could do that, but you are correct. No. So Sir Andrew is Sir Toby's friend. His dumbass friend. He's like a puppy. You just want to pat him on the head and keep him from running into walls. I was going to say, the only thing that really redeems Sir Andrew is that he is not a bad person. Right. He's just stupid. He's just super dumb. But he means well, and he doesn't hurt anyone, and he also doesn't force himself on Olivia. That's true. Props to Andrew. Like, her no works for him in a way that it does not work for us, you know, who keeps trying. <sighs> yeah. So in, in that way, he's less of a dick. But that's also, like, his only redeeming qualities. It is. Yeah, it's he's he's really only there because Toby wants him to be there to buy them booze and food and I assume the company of paid ladies. Yeah, no, like Toby explicitly says several times in the play that he's just bilking Andrew for all he's worth. Right. Um, fortunately, Andrew has lots of money and does not seem to be in danger of being bankrupted at the end of the play because otherwise it would be an even shittier situation. Yeah, he does get rejected by Toby very decisively, which is sad for Andrew. It is sad. I feel bad for him at the end, even though, as we've noted, he is extremely dumb. The dumbest. Anyway, not a snowflake's chance in hell with Olivia. Everyone knows it but him. <laughs> nope. Nope, nope, nope. Oh, and we wanted also to mention that the only interesting thing about Andrew and Olivia is that it is an example of a socially acceptable match that the world of the play has set up to be okay. That if, if this countess chose to marry this nobleman, that would be all right. Everyone would understand that in a way that they don't understand her repeated rejection of a duke. But really the only thing it's doing in the play from a thematic standpoint is to point up the fact that socially acceptable marriages are not the order of the day here. No, I mean, there's there's so much more that Shakespeare's saint has to go into a relationship. And the fact that Andrew is such an idiot and Olivia is so, so smart, I think just reemphasizes what he's saying with her and Orsino and then also her and Viola. And I'm not saying that she gets a Mensa candidate in Sebastian, but obviously it works out. <laughs> he's really cute. He's really cute, and he looks like that other guy that she really likes. And by guy, I mean girl. Okay, so we I feel like we've done our due diligence with the canon, Yay. and now we get to get to the fun parts. Yes! Which are the ships that we really love, a.k.a. I will go down with this ship. I will go down with this ship. And that's all you can sing before we get to. Yes. <laughs> so, all right, so our one true pairings all right. in Twelfth Night. Yes! All right, we have not talked about this at all, but to my shippy mind, it is the natural thing that happens as soon as the curtain falls. It's a little thing I like to call the Great Illyrian Foursome. Uh, 
Williams. This is what happens when you have four people in two marriages, three of whom are mutually attracted to each other. Sebastian just kind of yes. has to lump it. I mean, I'm sure he could have a good time with Orsino or go off with Antonio whenever he wanted, but we'll talk yeah, about that. Yeah, no, I mean, hes I don't think he's going to be complaining. But I have pretty much always headcanoned that once the events of the play are over, sooner or later, all four of these people are going to get busy together, and they're going to love it. Yep, so that sister that uh, Olivia offers to Viola at the end of the play Mm -hmm. is the raunchiest sister in perhaps all of theatrical history. Yeah, no, my favorite is actually her line just when Sebastian and Viola have seen each other and everyone is like, oh my god, and Olivia, bless her heart, looks back and forth and says, most wonderful! There are two of them! It's fucking canon, guys! Not really, but close enough. Yeah, close enough. Close enough for me. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's part of what makes it, you know, shippable, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The the good ones are the ones with textual evidence. Also, like, Orsino gets so worked up at the idea of Olivia Cesario oh, that yeah. he, would, he would get a kick out of watching Viola and Olivia go to town on each other. Like, he would lose his mind. Absolutely. Especially if he was, you know, doing Sebastian at the same uh-huh. time. No, there's, like, the boy who's actually a boy. It's Perfect. Yeah, because I was starting to have some doubts about my identity, and I'd really like to explore yeah. that, says Orsino. Because that's healthy. Well, yeah, actually. I mean, if you didn't have all these, you know, social restrictions and stuff, that is what people totally. would Totally. Work out your kinks. No judgment, dude. Oh, yeah. This is a judgment-free zone when it comes to kinks, mm-hmm. for the most part. Malvolio Olivia is still not okay. Yeah, there's nothing kinky about mm-hmm. that. But anyway, we're talking about good things. Good things. So yeah, uh, so you have the great Illyrian foursome. And as you noted, there is textual, we'll say subtextual support Yeah, for them getting it on. Also, can we talk about Orsino's just preoccupation with the clothes at the end of the play? Oh, bless his heart. Bless his trying so hard to be straight heart. 200 references to the womanly attire that Viola needs to put on. Oh my god, it's like the first thing he says after he's They've confirmed that they're super into each other and she is a girl. He's like, let me see thee in thy woman's weeds. <laughs> the last lines of the play, if you don't count the song, which I've always loved. He says, I mean, I'm, I've got a filthy mind, but he says, Cesario, come. <laughs> For so you shall be while you are a man. But when in other habits you are seen, Orsino's mistress and his fancy's queen. He's totally saying, like, hang on to that uniform. We're going to put it to good use. There's, there's going to be a lot of role-playing in our future. Uh-huh. uh-huh. A lot. Maybe sometimes I will wear the dress. God willing, yes. <laughs> please. Please, please, please. That would be so redemptive for him in I my know. mind. He spent, like, the whole play just, like, clinging to this unrealistic worldview. And I think it would be so liberating for him to, like, be ushered into some slightly kinkier stuff and explode that. Yeah, I think there's an argument for the Duke protesting too much, to be honest. So. Yes. So yeah, hard. Do it. He's trying so hard to be purely straight. So hard. It's really hard to be a man, right? <laughs> Bless. All right, but this still doesn't get at my very, very favorite ship. Take it. Which gets ruined a little bit at the end with Sebastian's marriage to Olivia. Yeah. So we've mentioned a certain pirate captain. <laughs> His name is Antonio. It's always Antonio. Always, always. Okay, if you meet an Antonio, not only is he a pirate, but he's a gay pirate. At least somehow involved with ships. And Helligay. Helligay. Okay, so mad in love with Sebastian. Let's find some lines for this because they are great. Oh my god, I have lines. You have lines? Oh god. Do you want to deliver some lines? (laughs) 
So Sebastian is leaving. This is the very first Sebastian scene we have. Also the first scene with Antonio. Also the moment when we realize as the audience that, hey, Sebastian is alive. Yay. And And having gay pirate sex. Totally having gay pirate sex. Yeah. Anyway, Sebastian is leaving because he's he feels like he's mooched on Antonio's hospitality long enough. Antonio's first line, which opens the scene, is, Will you stay no longer, nor will you not that I go with you? Heartbreaking. Sebastian is just like, dude, I'm so sorry. I've I've been a total mooch. I gotta go. But this is who I really am, because you've been so nice to me, and you've done such fun things to my body. Such fun things. And he's, if he winds up, you know, forgive me your trouble. The next thing Antonio says is, if you will not murder me for my love, let me be your servant. Ah, uh, feeling. So, okay, so what he's saying here, obviously, is if you leave me, it's going to kill me. Yeah. Not that Sebastian is literally going to murder him, just to be clear. Right. That would be weird. Very weird. But yeah, that he will die of a broken heart. Wow. Yeah. No, like, Antonio has such pure feelings. It's delightful. And then Sebastian leaves. And he tells the audience that he has done some crap with Orsino's stuff. Because he's a pirate. Because he's a pirate. He's, like, attacked his ships and possibly caused right. Orsino's nephew to lose a leg. Like he He's is, a wanted man. He is on the shittiest of all shit lists. There are posters with his face on it. I will, I will bet you anything. All over Illyria. He tells us this. And then he says... But come what may, I do adore thee so that danger shall seem sport. This is not a friendship alone. This is possibly the most passionate expression of love in this entire play. I mean, arguably. So it gets presented to us as a friendship, and that's absolutely fine, okay? Right. No, there's have, nothing wrong You can with be that. devoted to your friends. That's fine. But whoa, you guys. Just yeah. whoa. And the fact that, yeah, Antonio does go with him into certain danger for him, and we know that it's not actually a light situation because he does get captured. Mm-hmm. And if Sebastian wasn't there at the end, arguably could have been executed, something like Probably would have. Orsino was already in a fever pit. Yeah, that's what happens when you don't get laid as much as he hasn't gotten laid, but yeah. it's, it's not, not what we're talking about right now. Antonio does not know that. He has been getting laid on the reg. And then they reunite. They meet up because Antonio's followed Sebastian into town. And he gives him his purse. He gives him his money. They run into each other on the street and they're like, hey, dude. And Sebastian is just like, I'm so glad to see you here, even though I didn't want to put you to any more trouble. And Antonio says, I could not stay behind you. My desire, more sharp than filed steel, did spur me forth. It's unbelievable. Like, if you have, okay, if we're making the friendship argument, if your friend is that good, that's a good friend. Yes. But also, Shakespeare does not typically use so many different words to talk about an intense friendship. He, he will say love and mean it in every permutation of the word. But to use love and adore and desire, sharp desire, that's highly subtextual. No, I, arguably, I mean, I think we can entertain the idea that Shakespeare is working the subtext. Like, that's not unheard of. In this play particularly, the subtext is everything. Right, the subtext is practically text. I was only kind of kidding before when I said that Twelfth Night is the gayest play, but it is the gayest play. Yes. We have cross-dressing. We have all this gender stuff. We have this intense relationship, however you want to characterize it, between two men and another possible one between two women. So even if under kind of what's acceptable in Elizabethan times, that like, you know, these aren't fully expressed in the way that like a modern audience would expect they're present as hell. Yes. And they're crucial to both the plot and to the character developments. 
Yeah, and like I was saying before, I mean, it's part of the reason that we know Sebastian's a worthwhile person. I mean, this this other dude is intensely attached to him, and his feelings, as you say, are extremely, you know, pure and heartfelt. He has no other motivation for following Sebastian into certain danger, except that he cares about him. So much. So very much. And, and Sebastian, I think, to his credit, does reciprocate a lot of those feelings. I mean, it's not clear how much, but when he is isolated at Olivia's, the person he wants to talk to is Antonio. Yes, and when he sees Antonio again at the end, he's first he apologizes to Olivia for keeping her waiting after they've just been married. Then he turns around, he sees Antonio, and he's like, oh my god, you're here too! Yay! Yay, all the sex! Or, but yeah, also this person I really care about and, you know, does speak up for him. So the, the devastation that Antonio feels when he thinks... It's Sebastian, but it's really Viola, and they kind of reject him, which is oh my terrible God. and saddest That thing. one's... But it's also kind of so funny, mm-hmm. because his accusation to Sebastian, like, his parting words are, You were so beautiful! I thought you must be good! <laughs> Thou hast, Sebastian, done good feature shame! You're too pretty to be this mean? Yeah. yeah. Virtue is beauty, but the beauteous evil are empty trunks or flourished by the devil. Yeah, I feel like that's not the thing you shout at your buddy when they don't help you no. fail. No, when you do when they do that, you say, Hey, asshole, you suck. Dude. You don't say, Why are you so beautiful and so cruel? Yeah, that's a fair point. It's practically canon, right? From my point of view it is canon. I wanted to talk about it in the canon ships, but you are correct. <laughs> It is also my second OTP for this entire show. Oh, you didn't tell us. You need to tell us the name you came up. So uh, we have a reoccurring segment we're going to call Name That Ship. And this is the HMS. The HMS Cap Twin. Love it. It's perfect. It's so cute. Go forth and hashtag. Please. That would make us so happy. I'm not even kidding. So very happy. Okay. What what else do we have? So we've talked about the Great Illyrian Foursome. We've talked about Cap yes. Twin. Bless it. Uh, do we want to talk about... Uh, Violivia and Viorcino. Yeah, let's do it. I feel like we can kind of get at them in one one go, kind of talk about them in tandem. So yeah. Viorcino is your ship, but it is not mine. We will freely admit that. That's totally fine. Viorcino is an OTP of mine for the same reasons that we're okay with Maria and Toby. Viola loves Orsino, therefore Viola should get what she wants and I will rejoice for her. That's a fair point. But I will also say... <laughs> That one of the great joys of watching and reading this play again and again for me is in the Viola and Orsino relationship and the way that it develops. That she is very much the slap back to reality that he desperately needs. And it's so adorable to me to just watch him having to shift his paradigm constantly because no one else pushes him the way she does. By that, um, this is so. This is going to come up for me in our episode B of Twelfth Night, which you will be able to download soon. We'll say very ambiguously, shortly after you're available to download this one. Uh, so we'll have a second half to this where we talk about things like problematic faves and um, ships that we hate, <laughs> and who should be having icky, icky hate sex. <laughs> it's not a good play for hate sex. There are better plays for hate no, sex. No, there are much better plays for hate sex. So we will get in all that, and I will talk about my issues with Viracino then. But the, I, I think those are perfectly solid reasons to be into it. They just don't work for me. That's okay. That's why there's so many other ships in this play. There are so many ships in this play. I mean, I think there are a lot of ships in comedies in general, because that is 
absolutely how they're set up. Yes. But wow, there are a lot of shifts in this play. And there's the uh, the last one, the, the last one we're going to talk about. So the one that we share is Violivia, which is such a good ship. <laughs> so the reason that I like this one, and it's not just because it's super gay, but it is, is to me, it feels way more like a meeting of equals than Viracino does. Mm. Intellectually, these are two women on the same level. And, and you're right, you see that immediately. It's a meeting of minds, and it does not matter that one of them is in disguise. I mean, in a way, it facilitates it because Olivia behaves in a way that I think she might not if she immediately knew that Viola was a, a lady. Yes. Then, as you pointed out at the end, it clearly does not bother her as much as it bothers Orsino <laughs> that she's been chasing after another woman this entire time. And I find that awesome and fascinating. Completely. I will say also that the funny thing about shipping Viola with Olivia and with Orsino is that neither one of the O's can take no. Oh no. Neither one of them respects the no in, like, a meaningful way. Orsino spends god knows how long just sending useless poem after useless poem to Olivia, and Olivia summons Viola back twice within the course of a couple days, maybe even a day, to pretend that maybe this time she can bring her around to getting into Orsino, but really it's just to stare at how pretty she is. And she she persists in her wooing of Cesario, which is interesting from a cultural standpoint. It is, and I think it speaks to something else going on with that dynamic that they both have, is no one says no to these people. Yeah. Ever. No wonder they don't expect anyone to turn them down. The interesting thing for me as far as Viola is concerned, too, is that Viola is wooed by Olivia, but has to woo Orsino herself, which is another reason that I also ship by Orsino, because to someone as self-sufficient and badass as Viola, I totally get that she would be more invested in the relationship she's actually put effort into. That's a good point. I mean, we have two inversions of, again, to go back to the Petrarchan ideal of the courtly love, where the the man does all of the longing, Mm -hmm. all of the wooing. We have these very assertive women who both woo their love interests pretty aggressively. Successfully. They succeed where the men fail. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, the thing with Olivia and Sebastian is super convenient, but he also doesn't say no to her. Yeah. He's into it. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's compelling for sure. I mean, it's compelling beyond the ships that like maybe the greatest inversion of the play doesn't really get restored at the end. Because the women are still the dominant partners in these relationships. Exactly. They, both Olivia and Viola wear the pants in their marriage and their respective husbands love that. Yeah, that's what they respond to and they didn't realize that's what they needed. And, you know, again, this is an argument for an equal relationship which we see so rarely in these romances and these plays. God bless them all. <laughs> the Great Illyrian Foursome! Again, my true OTP. I mean, it just, it solves all of it, right? You get to have everything you could possibly want. Yeah. And, you know, it can be the Great Illyrian Foursome plus a certain pirate captain. Yeah. And we've solved everything. It's just, it's just perfect. It is. It's really great. It's it's funny because a lot of the comedies at the end, I, I feel like a little bit squirmy or uncomfortable about at least one of the couples. Um, Much Ado is probably a good example uh, with Hero. Oh, God, that poor girl. Someone hook her up with someone badass. Someone who appreciates her. Someone who does not have a Madonna whore complex. 
oh, sucks so hard. But yeah, so no, there's a lot of, of that in Shakespeare and contemporary plays from the era and plenty of media now. So it's really nice not to have that. But you're right. This is the only Shakespeare comedy for my money where you're satisfied with the relationships at the end. Because even, even as you like it, which is awesome, we don't get any background for Oliver's heel-face turn. It just happens. Yeah. And poor Celia Rosalind is never resolved, but we'll get that later. But yeah, this this is the happiest resolution of all the comedies, as far as I'm concerned. The most satisfying, even, even with the convenience of the twins, the most satisfying. Because again, we have a bunch of consenting adults who are clearly happy with how things turned out. And a bunch of badass women in charge, which is always the best way to do things. It's the best way to end any story, right? Right. Of course, right. <laughs> okay, so we're almost done with this week's episode of Shipping Shakespeare. Yay! Woo-hoo! First episode! You want to conclude with robots? Sure. So we also like to talk about minor ships between minor characters that you can you can read into the play, but that don't really make much of a difference to the plot or to character development. We call these rowboats. They're not full-fledged ships. Yeah, they kind of, they're under their own power. No captain. You can turn them anywhere. You can paddle them up a river. Just leave them there. They won't mind. Yeah, they're fine. They're off doing their their own thing for most of the play anyway. In terms of emotional feeling, Cap Twin absolutely does not belong here, but in terms of stage time, I would argue that it does. That's true. I mean, when do they show up again? They show up for one scene in Act 2, then for one scene in Act 3, and then they don't talk to each other again until the very last scene. Okay, yeah. So, not a lot of playing time, but uh, you're right. The intensity of the relationship, arguably... If it's a rowboat, it's a really nice rowboat. Yes. Well, it's a perfect example of an OTP that accomplishes a great deal in very little time. This is true. Extremely efficient. I I would argue much more than the other rowboats that we would talk about here, which to my mind would include Toby and Maria. Yes, even I though could it is that. canon, it's very small. It's two side characters. Often in Shakespeare, I think we're going to see that rowboats usually involve characters of somewhat less means, especially when we have a lot of nobility involved. I mean, Sir Toby's a knight, but still, he's squarely in the B plot, and rowboats do not involve A plot characters. <laughs> Let's see, who else do we have here? I guess you can put Fabian with whoever you want. I kind of like Fabian and Maria. I'd forgotten that he speaks up for her at the end. So had I. Like that that one line, I think qualifies it for rowboat status, but... Yeah, that's kind of sweet. But it's the only really concrete canon thing that makes Fabian shippable with anyone. Yeah, I, I feel like you could put any of the B characters together. I'm not sure why you would. But given the amount of drunken carousing that they do, I suppose it's possible that any of them have been with each other at any point in time. And don't remember it. <laughs> don't remember a damn thing. <laughs> So I do have a rowboat that I really like because uh, we, we kind of jokingly put in the notes, we're not sure if you can ship Feste the Fool with anyone or everyone. <laughs> Unless he's played by Ben Kingsley, in which case, everyone. But I would argue that Feste Maria is kind of sweet. Huh. Because they banter considerably. And she actually, um, when he is possibly going to get, you know, taken through the ringer by Olivia, she's the one talking to him beforehand, like, you need to apologize, you need to do all of these things. And sure, that's like part of her role as someone who makes the household work, but I think it could also be something else. That's really interesting and I like it a lot. It also makes me really sad that Toby Maria is canon. I know. Because there are so many better options for Homegirl. You could just scratch out that line. It didn't happen. I mean, it's one line that makes it canon. It's one line, but it's... One line. But it's there, and we can't really blame that one on Thomas Middleton. No. Fabian could be lying. He could be lying, maybe. I don't know. Because he also loves her. (gasps) 
Damn, Maria's just like the chick magnet of below stairs. The rowboat this week is named Maria. Yes. <laughs> Who knew Maria was the little black dress of Twelfth Night? <laughs> she's great. Clearly uh, everyone think... in the B-plot knew it. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's the only thing that makes it work. Like, if it wasn't for her, Malvolio would still have dominion over everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and by everyone, I mean Veste and Sir Toby and Sir Andrew and Fabian and Maria, and that would be it. Yeah. He sucks. He sucks pretty hard. Not in a good way. <laughs> any other rowboats? I think that's it. Yeah, not not a lot of options. I mean, arguably you could put any of the B characters with the A characters, but again, I really don't know why you would, given how rich the A plot is. Yeah, it's not a plot that needs more ships to be compelling, and it's certainly not a plot that rewards ships beyond what's already there and gives them a satisfying ending. Absolutely. So there's really no reason. But if, if that blows your skirt up, then, you know, by all means. Have at it. Sure. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Yay! All right, so that's... That includes our very first episode of Shipping Shakespeare. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll tune in next time for our episode B of Twelfth Night, which we will talk about some of the more problematic slash super gross (laughs) parts of the pairings. Um, But it'll still be fun. We will also discuss ships that need to burn up in a fire and our hate sex couple of the month. Yay! Looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody. This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.